I didn't learn of Friedrich Nietzsche in a classroom or lecture hall. Strangely enough, I first became aware of the German philosopher through my fascination with legendary Doors frontman Jim Morrison. At an early age, I became so taken with the almost preternaturally charismatic singer and poet that after discovering through the Danny Sugarman and Jerry Hopkins biography, No One Here Gets Out Alive, just how well-read and erudite Jim had been, I decided that I wanted to know what he knew. I wanted to read the books that he read. And so there I was, a horrible and disinterested student through my middle school and high school years, who couldn't be motivated to read the required classroom texts, but who on his own was reading Kerouac and Huxley and exploring the theater and philosophy of the ancient Greeks. I still remember the metal shop teacher who urged me to keep reading Plato, but moodily told me to avoid Sophocles. I think he found the tragedian's work to be too degenerate. I take it said metal shop teacher probably wouldn't have been too fond of the Oedipal section of the end. Through Morrison, I also discovered the poetry of William Blake and Oscar Wilde, of Rimbaud and Baudelaire, the subversive works of infamous writers like Antonin Artaud, the playwright and essayist behind the theater of cruelty, as well as the debauched and rebellious French aristocrat, the Marquis de Sade, who literally gave sadism its name. And of course, as previously mentioned, it was also through Morrison that I discovered the philosophy of Nietzsche. The first work by Nietzsche that I ever read was The Birth of Tragedy, first published in 1872 as The Birth of Tragedy from the Spirit of Music, and then reissued in 1886 as The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism. Any Doors fan worth their salt will know of the association between Morrison and Dionysus. Morrison was heavily influenced by Nietzsche, and in The Birth of Tragedy, the philosopher explores what he saw as the dichotomy between the Dionysian and the Apollonian in the arts. Dionysus and Apollo were both sons of Zeus, but differed greatly in character. Entire books have been written on the role and nature of Dionysus, such as Carl Carriani's Dionysus, Archetypal Image of Indestructible Life. And so, understandably, I feel somewhat humbled by the task of attempting to distill the god's role down to a couple of sentences. But in short, Dionysus was on the one hand an agricultural deity, specifically the god of the vine, of wine and winemaking, of the wine harvest, fruit and fertility. But as the god of the vine, he also represented intoxication, ritual madness and revelry, frenzy and religious ecstasy. The sun god Apollo, in contrast, was a relatively more chaste and sober deity, a god of order and harmony, of rational thought, reason, and logic. Dionysus was a god who represented the dissolution of the self into primordial ecstasy, reality disordered and undifferentiated by forms, while Apollo represented reality ordered and differentiated by forms. Nietzsche saw the Dionysian element as existing in the visceral performing arts, music, and dance, while the Apollonian aspect, although Apollo too traditionally is associated with music, was represented in the more plastic or static arts, such as sculpture. Although it should be noted that the deities themselves weren't traditionally viewed as being diametrically opposed or in competition, Nietzsche viewed the Dionysian and the Apollonian as eternally warring aspects prior to the advent of Greek tragic theater. In his own words, 
Wherever the Dionysian prevailed, the Apollonian was checked and destroyed. Wherever the first Dionysian onslaught was successfully withstood, the authority and majesty of the Delphic god Apollo exhibited itself as more rigid and menacing than ever. For Nietzsche, what made the art form of Greek tragedy so special is that it contained and harmonized both the Dionysian and Apollonian. And it should be noted, although I think the matter still remains contentious or a bit of a mystery, that it's thought that Greek tragedy itself may have its very roots in rites honoring Dionysus. Aristotle, in his Poetics, states that comedy and tragedy both come from a kind of improvisation, the latter specifically from the prelude to the dithyramb a hymn danced and sung in honor of Dionysus. Nietzsche believed the Dionysian aspect was present in the music of the chorus and the Apollonian in the ordered dialogue. In a sense, the Apollonian gave form to the Dionysian. Through the medium of tragic theater, the viewer was allowed to transcend or escape the nagging pessimism and seeming meaninglessness of mundane existence. Through the performance, the suffering of life was put on full display and given meaning, thusly bringing about or inducing a kind of catharsis in the audience. Initially, this was only intended to be a brief documentary episode on Nietzsche and the famous Turin horse incident, but as is often the case with these little documentary episodes, once you start digging down, things can quickly become more complicated than planned. Hence the digression on Dionysus and Greek theater, but at last, here we are. The story goes something like this. On the morning of January 3rd, 1889, while out walking the streets of Turin, Italy, Nietzsche spotted a horse at the other end of the Plaza Carlo Alberto being violently whipped or beaten by its owner. Distraught and enraged, Nietzsche rushed over to the horse and flung his arms around its neck to shield it from the cruel blows. The philosopher then burst into tears and collapsed. The outburst had supposedly drawn the attention of two policemen, and as the story goes, Nietzsche had nearly been arrested. But David Fino, his friend and landlord, rushed him home where he spent two days in a catatonic state. It seems to be accepted or agreed upon that Nietzsche did cause some kind of public disturbance in the streets of Turin, Italy, before suffering a mental collapse. But it's hard to say whether the part involving the horse is genuine or apocryphal. Some say the story surfaced shortly after the philosopher's death, while others posit that it may not have arisen until roughly ten years after. I mentioned earlier how it was my interest in the doors that initially led me to Nietzsche. It was through this same interest that I first became aware of the horse incident. Back when video cassettes were still the technology of the day, I had a small collection of Doors VHS tapes, and one contained some rare black and white clips, including footage of Jim Morrison playing the piano and talking about Nietzsche. Unfortunately, I lost my Doors VHS tapes over the years, but luckily I was able to find the aforementioned footage on YouTube. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube, here's hoping playing this doesn't cost me a copyright strike. And keep in mind, this is an improvised tongue-in-cheek performance by Jim. gathered, his landlord appeared, and took Frederick back up to his rooms on the second floor where he began to 
play the piano madly and sing madly, like... So even though tongue-in-cheek in nature, Jim still hits on some facts, like the involvement of Nietzsche's mother, his aforementioned landlord, as well as his friend, Protestant theologian Franz Uverbeck. Shortly before and after his collapse in Turin, Italy, Nietzsche sent out a number of letters to various friends. The letters seem bizarre and manic in nature. Scholars refer to them as von Briefe, letters of insanity, or alternately, von Zettel, madness letters. Among the recipients were Jacob Burkhardt, a Swiss historian, and Cosima Wagner, wife of the famous German composer Richard Wagner. Nietzsche greatly admired Wagner, but would eventually become disillusioned with him, and the two would ultimately part ways. While still lucid during the lead-up to his mental collapse, Nietzsche penned a work entitled Nietzsche contra Wagner, in which he attacks the composer's views. The following is from a letter Nietzsche sent to Burkhardt. I have had Caiaphas put in fetters. Also last year I was crucified by the German doctors in a very drawn-out manner. Wilhelm, Bismarck, and all anti-Semites abolished. And here's an excerpt from a letter he sent to Meta von Selys, a Swiss feminist and historian. Fräulein von Selys, the world is transfigured, for God is on the earth. Do not you see how all the heavens rejoice? I have just taken possession of my empire. Cast the Pope into prison, and let Wilhelm Bismarck and Stoker be shot. Nietzsche's so-called madness letters were often signed either Dionysus or, alternately or conversely, the Crucified. In his philosophy, Nietzsche juxtaposed the pagan Dionysus with the crucified Christ, one representing an affirmation of life and the other a turning away or denial of it. The following is from the posthumous Will to Power. March through June, 1888. The two types, Dionysus and the crucified. To determine whether the typical religious man is a form of decadence, the great innovators are one and all morbid and epileptic. But are we not here omitting one type of religious man, the pagan? Is the pagan cult not a form of thanksgiving and affirmation of life? Must its highest representative not be an apology for any deification of life? 
the type of a well-constituted and ecstatically overflowing spirit, the type of a spirit that takes into itself and redeems the contradictions and questionable aspects of existence. It is here I set the Dionysus of the Greeks, the religious affirmation of life, life whole and not denied or in part, Typical that the sexual act arouses profundity, mystery, reverence. Dionysus versus the crucified. There you have the antithesis. It is not a difference in regard to their martyrdom. It is a difference in the meaning of it. Life itself, its eternal fruitfulness and recurrence, creates torment, destruction, the will to annihilation. In the other case, suffering, the crucified as the innocent one, counts on an objection to this life as a formula for its condemnation. One will see that the problem is that of the meaning of suffering, whether a Christian meaning or a tragic meaning. In the former case, it is supposed to be the path to a holy existence. In the latter case, being is counted as holy enough to justify even a monstrous amount of suffering. The tragic man affirms even the harshest suffering. He is sufficiently strong, rich, and capable of deifying to do so. The Christian denies even the happiest lot on earth. He is sufficiently weak, poor, disinherited to suffer from life in whatever form he meets it. The God on the cross is a curse on life, a signpost to seek redemption from life. Dionysus cut to pieces is a promise of life. It will be eternally reborn and return again from destruction. Nietzsche references the martyrdom of the two deities. Like Christ, Dionysus was also a dying and rising god. But as previously mentioned, Nietzsche regarded the pagan spirit of death and resurrection embodied in Dionysus to be an affirmation of life, while the suffering Christ embodied a kind of denial or turning away from it. There are numerous accounts regarding Dionysus' birth, but generally speaking, they usually conform with one of two basic narratives. Some accounts name the agricultural goddess Demeter, or alternately her daughter Persephone, as the mother of Dionysus. Incited by the jealous Hera, Zeus's wife, the Titan sees the infant god and terror cut him into pieces, only to be reassembled and made new. The Sparagmos, from Greek sparaso to tear, rend, pull to pieces, was a kind of ritual dismemberment, mirroring the rending apart of the child Dionysus by the Titans. It became an important motif in Dionysian religion. The Bacantes, or Maenads, female devotees of Dionysus, were said to work themselves up into a mad frenzy, in which they would rend or tear apart live animals or even human beings. This was often followed by amophagia, the eating of raw flesh. Despite the concept's religious importance, there isn't much historical evidence to suggest that female devotees actually dismembered live animals as a part of Dionysian rites. The Bacchae of Euripides, an ancient Greek tragedy dating back to the early 5th century before Common Era, contains multiple examples of ritual sparagmos. In one scene, guards sent to control the Maenads witness them tear apart a bull, an animal often associated with the god Dionysus, with their bare hands. And then famously, Pentheus, the Theban king who banned the worship of Dionysus, is lured into the woods by the god himself, disguised as a woman where he is subsequently ripped apart by frenzied maenads, including his own mother. The other and arguably more well-known birth narrative tells of how the ever-philandering Zeus impregnated the mortal Theban princess Semele. 
Once again, the jealous Hera plots the child's destruction. In mortal guise, Hera persuades Semele to request that Zeus reveal his true form to her. Zeus attempts to persuade Semele to abandon the request, but at last acquiesces. Wreathed in lightning in the full terrible aspect of his unconcealed godhood, the king of the gods reveals himself, and Semele is struck and killed by one of his bolts. Zeus rescues the premature child from the ashes and sews it into his inner thigh, presumably to finish its development until ready to be born again. It is due to this strange double birth that Dionysus came to bear the epithet twice born. In some cases, attempts were made to join or harmonize the two narratives, such as one version where Dionysus is torn apart by the Titans, but then has Zeus putting the fragments of the dismembered child's heart into a drink, which he then gives to Semele, resulting in the pregnancy that would lead to the slain god's second birth. But after yet another lengthy Dionysian digression, let us return to Nietzsche in the aftermath of the Turin incident. Nietzsche's friend Burkhardt and Overbeck, who had both received disconcerting letters from the philosopher, had decided they needed to take him to Basel, Switzerland, for proper treatment. It was Overbeck who traveled to Turin to collect Nietzsche. He brought Friedrich, who appeared to be in the grip of a serious mental illness, to a psychiatric clinic in Basel. After only two weeks, Nietzsche's mother, Franziska, decided to transfer him to a German clinic in Jena, under the direction of famed Swiss-born psychiatrist and neurologist Otto Binswanger. Nietzsche had been diagnosed with tertiary cerebral syphilis due to the fact that he had supposedly been displaying signs of paralytic dementia, also referred to at the time as general paralysis of the insane, a disorder associated with late stages of untreated syphilis and characterized by symptoms such as impaired memory, depression, mania, tremors, confusion, and seizures. In the final stages, the patient can become completely catatonic. If the diagnosis of syphilis was indeed accurate, Nietzsche, as the story goes, may have acquired the disease roughly two decades earlier as a university student during a visit to a brothel in Leipzig. Binswanger supposedly found the diagnosis of tertiary syphilis, or syphilitic dementia paralytica, to be indisputable, but a number of modern experts have challenged Nietzsche's syphilis diagnosis and have posited everything from a slow-growing cancerous brain tumor to mercury poisoning acquired while being wrongly treated for the disease, mercury having been a common treatment for syphilis up until the early 20th century. Psychologist Leonard Sachs doesn't believe the records including Nietzsche's personal notes justify a diagnosis of tertiary syphilis and cites the fact that most people usually die within two to five years after having been diagnosed, but Nietzsche lived on for more than a decade, albeit mostly in a catatonic state. Unable to care for himself, Nietzsche's mother, Franziska, cared for him for a time. After she eventually passed, Nietzsche was moved to Weimar, where his sister, Elisabeth, cared for him and allowed visitors. Nietzsche suffered a series of at least two strokes between 1898 and 1899, and then in the year 1900, after contracting pneumonia and suffering yet another stroke, Friedrich Nietzsche died. Elisabeth had her brother buried at the church in their hometown of Röcken, next to their father Karl Ludwig Nietzsche, who had been a teacher and Lutheran pastor. 
author and composer Heinrich Koselitz, a close friend of Nietzsche, who the philosopher gave the pseudonym Peter Gast, gave the funeral oration and proclaimed, Holy be your name to all future generations. A number of people close to Nietzsche took it upon themselves to assume control of his unpublished works. In January 1889, the same month as his mental collapse in turn Italy, Burkhardt and Overbeck went forward with the already planned release of their friend's book, Twilight of the Idols, or How to Philosophize with a Hammer. Nietzsche had been enjoying an increase in popularity both in and outside Germany, and the book was intended to function as a brief introduction to his work. In March of 1890, around the same time Nietzsche's mother took Friedrich to her home in Nomburg to care for him, Overbeck and Gast went ahead and ordered the printing of 50 private edition copies of Nietzsche's aforementioned work, Nietzsche contra Wagner. They held off on publishing The Antichrist and Ecce Homo due to the more radical nature of the text. The works published on his behalf during his illness were generally well-received and led to a surge in popularity and interest. In 1893, Nietzsche's sister returned home from Paraguay following the suicide of her husband. She preoccupied herself with studying her brother's work and took over control of their publishing. Dismissing Overbeck and bringing gas to heel, one of the visitors Elisabeth allowed while taking care of Friedrich was philosopher and esoterist Rudolf Steiner. Steiner had been a great admirer of Nietzsche and had even authored a book entitled Friedrich Nietzsche, A Fighter Against His Time, which praised the philosopher. Elisabeth hired Steiner to tutor her on her brother's work, but he gave up after several months, stating that it would be impossible to teach her anything about philosophy. Unfortunately, many have come to associate Nietzsche's concept of the Overman or Ubermensch with the racist ideology of the Third Reich. Nietzsche openly condemned anti-Semitism, but his sister Elisabeth was a right-wing German nationalist and an anti-Semite. In 1930, she became a supporter of the Nazi party, and in 1933, when Hitler came to power, her self-founded organization, which she referred to as the Nietzsche Archive, received government funding and publicity, and in turn, she lent the Reich the prestige of her brother's reputation. When Elisabeth died in 1935, Hitler as well as a number of high-ranking Nazi dignitaries attended the funeral. It's thought that she edited and manipulated her brother's writings and even falsified letters in an attempt to make his philosophy align with her own far-right worldview. According to Dr. Leonard Sachs, who I mentioned earlier, the story about Nietzsche contracting syphilis from a prostitute may be nothing more than a hearsay anecdote shared between physicians that had been intentionally popularized after World War II in an attempt to smear or discredit the philosophy of a man whose work had been appropriated by the Nazis as nothing more than the deranged fruit of a long festering madness. So what was meant to be a brief audio documentary on the Turin horse incident has turned into this. Whatever happened to that horse, I don't think anyone really knows, but that question became the inspiration for a 2011 Hungarian philosophical drama simply entitled The Turin Horse. 
To be honest, I haven't watched it, but I plan to. I think the anecdote or account of Nietzsche and the horse has always stuck with me on the one hand just because of the sheer strangeness of it. But mostly I think it's because as an animal lover, there's something about the idea that witnessing the violent suffering of an animal could be the final straw that causes a man's sanity to collapse. There's something about that that really resonates with me or that I find moving or powerful. But with that being said, I guess this concludes this special documentary episode of The Week in Doubt. I hope you enjoyed it, and as always, thanks for listening.